it's really a um, troublesome time, isn't it? As we look in the news and around the world, we see a lot of things taking place. Um, individually, many of us may have things going on in our family that would uh, cause us heartache or despair. We look at the news in the country and we see a lot of things taking place that may be hard for us to understand. And uh, again, for those of us, especially who are older, that remember, uh, if you will, the good old days, that's hard to see what's taking place. And so I just wanted to share a little bit, if you turn to First Peter chapter 1 this morning, of what God shared and uh, just really spoke to me this week, and I found encouraging. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 16 as the main focus of the message, and then the rest of the chapter I will kind of highlight, I will uh, kind of overview uh, just as we close with that. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers gathered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, excuse me, the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice now for a season, if need be, if you are in heaviness, or excuse me, you are in heaviness through the manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes through it, be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom thou now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify and testify beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it should be revealed that not unto themselves, but unto they did minister the things which they are now reported unto you by those that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Whereof, wherefore, gird yourself up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashion, fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner 
of conversation. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Don't you just love the Apostle Peter? You look back in the gospel at the narratives that, uh, where we learn the story and we see Peter being called by Jesus Christ. He was impulsive. He was aggressive. It seemed that if he came to mind, Peter would say it. If he thought of doing something, he did it. At one point, he was threatened or felt threatened or felt the Lord threatened. And so he cut off a man's ear. When confronted, he denied Jesus, not once, but three times. But when we come to this letter, which Peter wrote, and it's about 64, 65 A.D., we come to this letter about 30 years after the Gospels, and Peter is a different man. He's a different man. He's learned. He's matured. He's got the spirit that has filled him after Pentecost. And he tells something different to those who are listening. Now, this is just as a way of a little background. This is after the resurrection and the ascension. You remember Saul of Tarsus went out and he started persecuting the Christians. And it scattered the Christians out of Jerusalem. And then about this time in A.D. 64, Rome burned down, or a good section of Rome burned. And Nero, most historians believe, he was the one who set the fire. But you know who he blamed? He blamed the Christians. And so a persecution began up to that point like no other, and the Christians spread throughout the region. And so Peter is addressing some of those Christians who have gone out into other areas, these Areas in verse 1 that he mentioned are uh, provinces, areas of Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And so the Christians were there. And in the midst of this turmoil, if you want to call them that, he, he addresses these displaced Christians, but he calls them strangers. Well, they're strangers because they're strangers in a strange land. They, they've moved out from their home of, of Jerusalem. And so they're in an area where they're uncomfortable. They don't, they don't feel at home. They feel like because of what has happened, they may have to pick up and, and take off again and move on. But in a real sense, as we look at this, you know, Peter makes a, a truthful statement here. They're strangers in the world, such as we are. If we're believers, if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are strangers in this world. We shouldn't get comfortable. And Peter goes on and he shares several things about it. Now, the current situation we find ourselves in is not one of which we're being directly persecuted yet. Maybe individually when we, we share with somebody that we go to church or that we share the gospel with them, Somebody may laugh at us. They may ridicule us. But directly, we're not being led to prison. We're not being um, martyred yet. But that day may come, sadly. As Brother Steve Clayton shared last week, we may come to that day again. But right now, the, the current situation is more about the U.S. than us. 
But it still causes us turmoil because we know this country that we live in, this home that we have, where we have felt comfortable, where we have grown up or where we have moved to, we feel unsettled. Maybe such as those Christians that Peter was addressing. But here in this letter, Peter reminds them they have reason to rejoice. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of despair and sadness and, and, and whatever word you want to use that you might feel right now and put in there, uh, depression. We have reason to rejoice. And Peter writes a strong letter to them to encourage them, to motivate them, to strengthen them, and even embolden them. And again, Peter's writing about AD 65, but as scripture is, for those who call the name of Christ, it's for us as well. It speaks to us today. So be encouraged. I, I, I trust in maybe something said today, something you hear would encourage you, motivate you, strengthen you, and embolden you. Embolden you. Old time, or excuse me, old time Bible teacher Irving Jensen, in his um, work on this letter, made the statement. He says Peter did not write the letter to ensure the believers or assure the believers that persecution would not come, but to encourage them to stand true and endure suffering for Christ in his strength. We have amazing hope in the miraculous salvation. Brother Steve talked about last week, the miraculous salvation we have. And Peter goes on to contrast and compare this salvation, this hope that we have with what the world has to offer. And in light of these verses that we are to prepare and have a different outlook and how we should live and have our view of life, and again, as you look over this whole passage, he gives us reason to rejoice. I'm going to just brush over verses 1 and 2 because it's basically... Uh, Peter's introduction here, he's talking to believers. And so in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said there's a salvation like no other that we have as Christians. We have a hope like no other. And again, that's not just a hope of a, just a ferial thing out there. Why I, I, I hope my team wins or I hope that girl likes me or I hope that guy likes me. It's not just a little hope. It's a hope based upon truth and promises from God. The salvation like, like no other. Now, just to be clear, and we sang about it earlier, you saw it on the screen, the words about salvation. Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, lived a perfect life, taught for three years, showed people the gospel, the truth that God wanted, that we are all sinners before him. 
that none of us have anything to stand on. None of us can offer him anything. We cannot earn anything or give him anything that would draw us to him. But Jesus shed his perfect blood, died on the cross, was buried, raised again on the third day victoriously, as Peter says here that he, through his abundant mercy, has given us through this, that God raised him from the dead. And the truth is, all of us are sinners. Not one of us here, not one person who is ever born accepting Jesus Christ can say, I can go to the Father. Jesus in John fourteen six said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. And that's basically, in a nutshell, a simple gospel that we're talking about. And it's a salvation. Be saved. It's like no other. So he gives blessing and praise. Why? According to God's abundant mercy, he begins with God. It all begins with God. God's abundant mercy. That abundant mercy means that it's overflowing. It's more than enough. It's uh, it's plentiful. It's fully sufficient. None of us can say, oh, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things I've thought. God's mercy is abundant. It's fully sufficient for every one of us. And then he goes on, and mercy we know is his undeserved grace, his undeserved mercy, his undeserved uh, pleasure. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Peter says that we are begotten of God. That means to be born or to be birthed. The other times that that's used is in the Old Testament when when a father would father a child. But the spiritual time it's used is John 3.16 when Jesus is the only begotten of father. Now, we're not begotten in the same way that Jesus is, but the spiritual truth here that he's telling us is that when we come to Christ, when we receive him, when we have his salvation, that we are begotten in a supernatural way of God. It's him. It's ridiculous that we would think that we could do anything to outweigh our sin. We stand here and we say, well... I give my time to such and such, or I, I, I do this, or, or I try to live a good life. You know, I haven't murdered anyone. And we'll see in a few minutes what uh, Peter shares about, about a standard. But it, it's really, when we look at these things, it's ridiculous to think that we could do enough to earn the forgiveness of a righteous God, a holy God. But Peter says he's begotten us to a lively hope, a a vivacious, full of life hope that we have. And he reminds the people who are in despair, who are, are troubled and strangers. He says that you have a lively hope, not you will get or you might get. But in Jesus, you have a lively hope. 
because it's born of God. You know, something I want to share, and this is probably about the only good thing he ever said, but there was an Old Testament scholar years ago by the name of Gerhard von Rad. Of course, he was German with a name like that. He was very liberal, and he didn't, he didn't have a whole lot to share. But one thing he shared, which I think is pretty close to the truth, he said that faith is really looking back. So when God told Israel, the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, to look back on what he had done for them, that was faith, having faith in what God had accomplished. And therefore, we could look to the future and have hope for what he will do, the promises he has set down. And you see God doing that all the time in the Old Testament and New Testament. See what I've done. Behold what I've accomplished. And Peter is kind of doing the same thing here for the Christian, the one who may be a little discouraged this morning. See what God has done and have hope for the future. If you are a believer, you do have that lively hope. You just have to wake up again to it. You know, sometimes, and and this is, no uh, despair on Heather's part and, and stuff. I think most couples at times go through it. When we get married, you know, we have that, that romance and, and, and that feeling and that excitement. And, and we've had couples here in the recent months and years who have gotten married. And, and you have that just joyous feeling of finally being able to be together as a couple. And then trouble comes. Disagreement may come. You have that feeling maybe tarnished a little bit. And Peter's kind of doing that this morning where he's sharing with the believers that they have something. Maybe they've forgotten what they have. They have a lively hope in Jesus Christ. It's not something you might have or that you could uh, garner or, or, or work up. It is what you have in Jesus. It's a lively hope. In the second half of verse 3, he says that through that abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How does this lively hope come about? It's by the resurrection. You know, I, I can think of the Apostle Paul. He's echoing here in 1 Corinthians the Apostle Paul talks about the the truth that was taught to him that he's teaching to the Corinthian church. And he says, how can it be that some of you say there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus is not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, then our hope is in vain. And he says, we're miserable among men. But then he goes on and says, but Jesus is raised. And so we have this hope. We have this hope by the resurrection, the salvation of believers. For those of you who like history, um, there's a a gentleman that's written, I think it's six volumes, and there may be a seventh volume, uh, Thomas Cahill. Now, he, he is Roman Catholic, so some of his views on things are a little different. But he's written books, and the series is called The Hinges of History. And he he looks at different parts of history of what changed the world, what made the Western world what it is. And 
I would submit that the resurrection is the hinge of history. It is the world changer, the eternal changer, the life changer. So you have a lively hope. Not only does a Christian have a hope, but he has an inheritance. In verse 4, through God's abundant mercy and through the resurrection, we have been given an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, we think of an inheritance as something, a, a piece of property that we may inherit from somebody, some money from Great Aunt Gertrude, who we never met, that might leave us something. But here, the word is used in such a way that it's something we already possess. You think of the story of the prodigal son. It wasn't that when the father died that he got something, but he went to the father and he said, give me what will be mine. He says, give me what is my portion, what is mine. And of course, we look at that and it's a little foolish and selfish, but what Peter is trying to get across here is that we have this inheritance, just like we have the lively hope. That inheritance is already ours. And what's more, he, he, he gives four characteristics about it. It's incorruptible. That is, it's incapable of decay. What happens, and I know it's getting closer to lunchtime and some of you guys are getting hungry. But what happens if you take a, a nice steak and you take a hot day and you just set it out for a while and it begins to go bad, smells funny. If you'd leave it out long enough, it'd begin to rot. Other things would take place. That happens to everything we know in this world, doesn't it? Everything, cars, houses, everything. This is just a minor way of illustrating. This is one of my books from my library at home. It's a book from a series of history, of church history. 1804. Now, you look at this, and so it's over 200 years old. And you look at this, and you say, wow, that looks pretty nice. Maybe if the Lord tarries and I'm 200, I hope I look this good. (laughs) But the truth is, it's not like the day it was printed. It's decayed since then. There's what's called brown dusting on it. Like if I'd rub it up against my shirt, you could see brown uh, kind of dust left behind because the leather is decaying. If the Lord would tarry another 200 years, this would maybe fall apart. Everything we know in this world decays. Politics? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Businesses? Yes. Even relationships can decay. Nothing in this world is perfect. That inheritance we have in Jesus Christ is incorruptible. It's incapable of decay. Not only is it incorruptible, but it's undefiled. No impurities can enter into that inheritance. 
no impurities can enter in. And you think of maybe after a storm, sometimes maybe some of you live in an area that if there's a heavy storm where there's a lot of uh, flooding or backwashing, sometimes the, the water is bad, so they put out a boil advisory. The inheritance we have in Christ needs no boil advisory. It's undefiled. Nothing you can do can change what we have in Jesus Christ. The third thing he shares about this inheritance is that fadeth not away. Unlike my bank account at income tax time, it does not diminish. It does not fade like the pages of that book. They're still very readable, but they're slowly fading. You leave something out in the sun, it's going to fade. The inheritance we have doesn't fade. You know, as I look at this, and the the fourth one is reserved in heaven for you. It's secure. It's secure. So this inheritance, this lively hope, this inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, and it's reserved for you. It's better than a Swiss banker count or Fort Knox. God keeps it. Do you know, as I read through that passage, I, I, I thought of Peter might have been recalling Jesus sharing in the gospel. Matthew six nineteen, Lay up not for yourself treasures on earth where rust, moth, where the rust corrupts and the moth eats and the thief breaks in and steals. Peter might have been thinking about this, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust or the thief is present. It's incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, and it's reserved for you. This inheritance is perfect. It's reserved. But look at something else about this. Look with me at the end of verse 4 again. He's talking about this inheritance. He says, reserved in heaven for you. And then verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, he's talking about this salvation, this lively hope, this inheritance. Shouldn't he say which is kept by the power of God? He says who? We, believers, are kept by the power of God. That inheritance is reserved, but we are kept by the power of God. It keeps you. What is that power? That power is the same power that God spoke the word and the heavens were created. The worlds and planets were created. It's the same power that his finger wrote in stone those Ten Commandments. Or the breath of his nostrils divided that Red Sea. The power that keeps you is the same one that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
that same power who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Exercise that faith. Grab hold of what you already have in Jesus. Be reminded, be encouraged, be motivated that even when the world around us is falling apart, and again, those believers in Asia Minor, their world was falling apart. It was turned upside down. And and some people have described what we're going through right now in the United States as our world being turned upside down. It's not what it used to be. But we still have reason to rejoice because of what we have in Christ, despite all that is going on, despite all the troubles that may come. We still have this in Christ. In verse 6, he quickly states, wherein you greatly rejoice. If you remember this, you will greatly rejoice. How could you not rejoice? But Peter goes in verse 6, and he says, You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. For a season. Sometimes we think about that as our life. You know, recently, about three weeks ago, The pastor I grew up under, the pastor that led me to the Lord when I was 11 years old, went to be with the Lord. 89 years old. We think, wow, what a long life. But his oldest son shared something that really stuck with me. And I mean, we all know it, but it just, at that time, it hit me. Mark said, 89 years is a short stick. When we look at it, we think 89 years, young people, you're 12, 13, 14, 16, whatever you are, 18 years old, and you think, I have my whole life before me. It goes quickly. I could have you turn around like pastor does sometimes and ask how many adults, seems like it was yesterday, they graduate from high school. It, it, it It goes so quickly. Here, my son Aiden is 20 years old. I can remember yesterday, the day we brought him home from the hospital. Seems like it was just a few months ago. It goes quickly. So when when Peter says, now for a season... If you endure this, this manifold temptation, you will rejoice. So what is the manifold temptations he's talking about? Well, specifically here, he's talking about persecution. But it could be actual temptation where we're tempted. We need to turn away. We need to run. We need to hide from it. Or he could be talking about some trial or persecution, or as some of us may be in certain circumstances, maybe the Christians he was addressing, they might be thinking about quitting. They might be thinking about giving up. This Christian life is too hard. This persecution, I can't stand it. 
this ridicule from my friends, it's, it depresses me. And I don't ignore any of that. It, it, it is hard, and it can be hard to be ridiculed by those you like and are friends with. But don't give up. You already have what Christ has for us if you are a believer, if you've given your life to him. You have this already. For a season now, withstand that time. Stand for him, as we were saying earlier, that Peter is asking them to stand true to the truth. John Phillips, a commentator you've heard pastor refer to him a number of times. He talks about the comparison of the trial to what we have. And he says it soars. Our inheritance, our lively hope, soars beyond the trials. Before we move on just a little bit, think of Esau in the Old Testament. You remember that story where Esau is this manly man, and he goes out and he hunts and he's hungry and he comes back, and Jacob's at home. Maybe he's more of a homeboy. He can prepare the meals, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But Esau is starving so much that Jacob's able to talk him out of his inheritance. For the moment, Esau is willing to give up all that blessing for the moment. Think of that for yourself. Don't give up what you have. Don't give up what Christ has called you to for that moment. Peter goes on to say that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, excuse me, precious than gold which perishes, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's a faith, it's a testing. The way he speaks of it here is is like the verification, the, the proof of what you have. As gold is refined by burning, by, by melting it to get those impurities out, so God sometimes uses testing and trials in our lives to burn those impurities, those things out of our life, to perfect our faith that we may stand for him. As I said earlier, not uh, not in this country yet. The, too many of us have had to really face death, life and death situation because of our faith. But I've been researching some Baptist, Ohio Baptist history. And in 1841, there was a, a, an evangelist, a church planter in Cincinnati not too far from here, by the name of King Griswold. And there's not a whole lot about him, but here's one thing that stands. He preached the gospel. He planted churches. And one of the Baptist historians said he was a man to be commended for preaching the word. Do you know what happened? Somebody didn't like the word he was preaching. And they said one night after one of his messages, and they said he didn't speak to this man directly. But this man was so stirred and hated what he heard 
that afterwards he took a large rock and hit Griswold on the back of the head, causing such damage that within a day he died. There are trials that we will face. Hopefully, most of the trials we face will just be ones of learning, maturing. But will we stand when we bring that test, when that test comes our way? Whether it's that friend making fun of you, whether it's you're threatened with prison, or whether you're threatened with death in the day to come. Both Paul and Peter desired that their faith be given glory and honor to Christ. And that's what he's talking about when in verse 7 he says that when tried with fire be found to the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I think most of us, Mr. Chad was talking about pride in uh, Sunday school. And I think most of us like to get a pat on the back and hear that you did a good job or you're doing a great job or you look good today or whatever it may be. But you know, our real concern is, am I living? Am I running? Am I standing in the faith that when Jesus appears, I'll be glorified, not I'll be glorified, but he will be glorified because of our lives. Will he be glorified? Peter doesn't dwell on this longer. He goes back and Chad stole a little bit of my thunder this morning. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 12. So only those who were in the best Sunday school class heard this, but. The trials that we may face as believers, the trials that come across our life. Chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing, some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Jesus said, the world hated me first. It will hate you as well. So when we stand for Jesus, there will be trials. There will be trials. But we shouldn't think of it as being a strange thing. Peter again goes to the uh, unique state of our salvation and just briefly over um, verses 10 through 12, he talks about the prophets be given the spirit of Christ and and, and prophesying these words, prophesying about Christ coming and, and telling about his suffering for us. He said the prophets spoke of the spirit, but they didn't understand fully what they were preaching about. They they sought to look into it. Peter even adds that angels even want to look into this, into the salvation, this inheritance, this lively hope.
the prophets prophesied, but now you know, if you're a believer, you know what they were prophesying about. You know that truth. So what does it mean? It means a life lived differently. To some of us who have played sports, whether guys or girls, it means game on. It means get ready. Look what Peter says in the, the next few verses. In 13, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up. You know, the image of from the Old Testament, from the New Testament time, is they would wear those long flowing robes, and if they wanted to run, if they needed to do work, they would take the back hem of their garment and bring it up on their legs and then tie it off at the waist, tuck it in their belt so that their legs could move freely. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare in your mind for that battle. Do not just slide along. Do not just bide your time or go through the motions. Prepare. I could probably talk to several of you guys who have played sports, and again, even the girls. How many of you, when you have played, you've prepared, you've practiced, you've memorized the plays, whether it be basketball or football or, or whatever it be that you play, and you're in the midst of a crucial point in the game, and your team has the ball, and you're ready to make that play, and, and, and you're standing there, and your mind's off. Think about that little girl or that, that guy, or you're thinking about the homework you have tonight. No, your mind is prepared. Your mind is focused on that game. Your mind is fully uh, zeroed in on what needs to be done. And in the same way, Peter says that for us. We're not facing persecution right now, but he says, prepare. Prepare your minds. It, it echoes again the Apostle Paul. You know, early on in their, uh, when they first met, they were kind of butting heads, Paul and Peter. But it's amazing when you read Peter now, 30 years later, how much they come together. They agree because it's the Spirit of the Lord that's speaking through them. But prepare your minds, and, and I can think of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The idea is not to allow the world to press you into what they want for you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how do you do that? Through reading and studying his word. I know it's a a, a trite way to say it, but his instruction book. This is his truth. This is God's holy word written for us, for our benefit, for our growth, for our understanding, that we may know how to live in this world and prepare for battle and prepare for the next world. Be sober. I think most of us understand that. Be sober, be alert. The idea of somebody who who is drunk or, or drugged that 
they don't react in the same way. They're they're not thinking the same way. They they're not alert like they should be. Prepare yourself. Be alert. Then we have hope with knowledge to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm speaking to everyone because we all face it through our whole life. But again, young people, don't allow useless distractions to pull you away from spending time in the Word, reading it and studying it. It's so easy to do. And I'm not saying you can't have fun, you can't get together with your friends, you can't enjoy life. But just don't let that become your focus that pulls you away from those things. So read and study his word. The second thing is prayer. Be in prayer. And the third thing is fellowshipping with other believers, worshiping with them. And that's why this whole thing about not meeting together is so hard, is so crucial. They think, oh, yeah, you're just getting together. No, this is part of our faith. This is part of our encouragement, our strengthening. Read and study the word, praying and fellowshipping. Be prepared. Prepare your minds and gird up, or excuse me, be sober. Then he goes on in 14, he says, as obedient children, God is our father. So as obedient children, looking to him, what he wants, what does he say? Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. Think of a little child. A little child when maybe they're one or two, three, whatever, you can begin to train them. But sometimes they may not understand the danger. Hold my hand when we cross the street. Don't run out in the street by yourself. Don't talk to strangers. Those little things that your parents did. Don't shut the door behind your bedroom. We want it open so we know what's going on. It's not because they don't trust you. They want to guard you because they know how easy it is. They went through it too. As obedient children, do not fashion your world after them, your lives. Do not take your cue from the world. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't some songs that are, if you will, somewhat harmless that you can listen to. There are not things that you can't do, but don't take your cue from the world of what it is to be cool, what it is to be part of the in crowd, what it is to be, what was that phrase you used the other day, Aiden, that you said was outdated when you're dressed really nicely? Do you remember that? I can't remember. There was a phrase he used. That meant you were cool and you knew how to dress. Don't fashion yourself after the world. But as small children who know better, you've grown, you've matured, live for him according to what he calls us to. Now just briefly an overview of the next part in verse 17 he talks about God in the sense of a a disciplining father now we know from reading scripture 
that if we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we stand with him, if we uh, have claimed what he has offered to us, then nothing can take us that away. The Apostle Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he talks about whether life, nor death, nor height, nor, or, or, uh, or excuse me, life or death, height, nor depth, uh, principalities. None of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So this verse is not about salvation. What he's talking about is to live in fear because we know that God as a disciplining father can still discipline us. If we go off on our own, if we start living like the world, the father who loves you will discipline you, discipline you and and pursue you. And sometimes that is not pleasurable at all. You know, the way up, Heather and I were talking about something, it reminded me, years ago, there was a Christian contemporary group who sang a song called The Hound of Heaven. And when I first heard it, I thought, wow, that's that's harsh. I thought it was very disrespectful. But then I found out after researching it that it, it was based upon a, a, a man in the... I think it was a 1600 by the name of John Dunn. He wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And basically it says, when God loves you, he will pursue you. He will come after you like a hound because he is jealous for you. And he wants you to be close by his side. Peter returns to the comparison. He says... In verses 18 and 19, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, you know, the world would look around and we'd say, silver and gold, wow, that's pretty good. You know, I looked up the other day, and I, I, I believe that if I would ask you if I had a, a wad of bills here and say, who would like $2,000? Probably most hands would go up. Well, for an ounce of gold right now, it's $2,035. But God, through Peter, says it's corruptible as silver and gold. Those things, just like the book, just like what we were talking about earlier, those things corrupt, they, they fade away, they disappear, they, they fall apart. And in helping them to remember, helping them to rejoice, he says, you were not redeemed, you were not purchased with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received from the traditions of your ancestors, your fathers. Now, I think you've heard pastors say when it talks about conversation, that's talking about your lifestyle, the way you live. So we weren't, we weren't redeemed with those traditions. What does the next verse say? But with the precious blood of Christ. We sang about that earlier. The precious blood of Christ is what was shed and redeemed us. There's nothing, folks, there is nothing in this world that compares to the blood of Christ. 
Again, Jesus said that he is the only way. He has made the way, and only in him will you find this lively hope, will you find this inheritance. And just briefly, as we get near to closing here, he spoke of their changed mind or changed lives in verse 22. He says, because of this, because you recognize this, because you have this lively hope, this inheritance, you have been purified, or excuse me, you have purified your souls and banged the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart, being born not, and here it is again, the, the comparison, not of corruptible seed. Heather's had some of that from time to time with her gardening. Corruptible seed but incorruptible by the word of God. Being born again, of not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. God did all that we have, all that we hope for, all that we, we have in him. God did it, and it's perfect. Don't trade it. Don't give it up for the corruptible. Don't despair as you see things going on around you. And I know from day to day, sometimes it gets heavy, as Paul said, with heaviness. But rejoice, as somebody else has said. The victory's already won. We will come through this. Um, an old hymn, just uh, Shady Green Pastures. You know, some through the fire, some through the flood, some through great trials, but all through the blood. You know, some of us, if trials come, if persecution come, some of us may go through semi-easy time or just being ridiculed or maybe thrown in jail. Some may have to uh, be maimed for their life, for their trust, their testimony for Jesus. Some may have to die like... Griswold did in 1841. But if you've gone through the blood, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a lively hope. You have an inheritance which cannot be taken. It's reserved in heaven for you, and he keeps you by his power. So remember, as we go through each day, as we go from day to day, lift that up and thank the Lord for that to remember and give praise.